Where's Scott? Where do you go? He's out there. Scott, could you please ask them to have their coffee clatch somewhere else? Please? Got just a few extra minutes, so I, I thought I would... I, need to re I think I need to repeat something that I said a long time ago, and I've, I think I've said it again. But anyway, <clears throat> I made a conscious decision recently to teach for 45 minutes, to teach through the session. That, uh, thank you, Scott. <clears throat> um, I used to leave a little time for questions, etc. But I still invite your thoughts, your questions. The best way to do that is email, call me, talk to me, whatever. And if what we talk about will edify the group, then I will. But meanwhile, this was taking quite a while. This We are now on the 29th session, and we're still in the tribulation. And if I left time for questions at the end of the class, questions that I may not be able to answer, uh, it would cut in half. We would be taking twice as long to do it. So now we're covering more in each session. I hope that meets with your approval. Uh, that does not mean I don't want to hear from you. That just means use other means to Communicate with me, and that's fine. If you direct your questions in that manner, you will get a much better answer. Oh, I don't need this anymore. We need to begin our exploration of the remaining parenthetical visions. Oh, Simeon, thank you. Um, by taking care of some housekeeping, we need to get our bearings in the text and then point out the main characters that play critical roles in this final act of the eschaton. From God's perspective, this is the beginning of the end. Most important, however, we need to re-examine our interpretive approach to these visions. First, I want to consider the structure. As we saw in our last session, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet in chapter 11, verse 15. However, the narrative events that the trumpet actually produces the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath, are not chronicled until chapter 15, which records only the preparation for the pouring out of the bowls of wrath. They are actually poured out in chapter 16. Christ does not return, marking the official end of the tribulation, until the middle of chapter 19. There's only 22 chapters in the whole book. In between, roughly in chapters 12 to 14, we have the parenthetical visions that we'll be examining in the next few sessions. <clears throat> now, I included the text for our last session, chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, in with these parenthetical visions, the first one there, really for organizational purposes, just to get it in there, even though the subject and tenor of that passage is different in nature from the rest. Let's read the first two verses of this week's passage. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. 
Now, verse 1 begins with a great sign appeared in heaven. Let's just stop right there. The word translated sign is the Greek semion. It means just that, not wonder, which is how the King James Version has it. Uh, it's a sign, an outward, visible indication of secret power or truth. It, it, it designates something. It announces something. And it's a, it means something that means, it shows something that means something else. John MacArthur makes an excellent point regarding this that will help us properly digest the visions here and in the next few chapters. Here's what MacArthur, John MacArthur writes. A sign describes a symbol that points to a reality. The literal approach to interpreting Scripture, which is what we are doing in this class, allows for normal use of symbolic language, but understands that it points to a literal reality. Well, I want to camp on this for just a little bit. That's a good start. But what about later fantastical imagery not labeled a sign? That like these signs, we literalists will not interpret absolutely literally, such as a description of the beast from out of the sea. What's the difference? Don't MacArthur's words pardon all those interpreters that see the Roman Catholic papacy at every turn in the Revelation? Or those who blithely dictate that any reference to days, such as the two witnesses prophesying for 1,260 days, of course it means years. Where do we draw the line? How do, what makes the difference? I think it's necessary to pause for some analysis on this before we plow into these sometimes fantastical, even bizarre parenthetical visions. For we will indeed be concluding that they are not what they appear to John to be. And beyond that, they often mean more than just one thing. For example, the beast from the sea is not just Antichrist, but represents, as Walvard puts it, quote, a revelation of the revived Roman Empire in its period of worldwide domination. That is, Antichrist will be the head of that confederate confederation. And please understand my reason for taking time with this. Some may find this hard to believe, but I do not intentionally drag out these studies. For I have no desire to try the patience of those in attendance, although I know I do at times. However, my philosophy is this, and has been, regardless of the study, going all the way back 15 years. Why bother to make the study at all if you're not going to get down to the bare metal to understand the fullness of God's Word? Why take this time to just skim the surface? It would have taken one, maybe two or three sessions to deliver to you the skeleton of the eschatological timeline. I could have handed you one chart, say, there you go. But what good would that be without understanding what lies beneath the surface? The reasons for an explanation of the events, and not least, how they relate to each other and our relationship with God. That's why we're here, right? So please bear with me as I make some important distinctions regarding the interpretation of these apocalyptic texts that we find, and not just the Revelation, but Daniel, Ezekiel, and many of the other prophecies. So bear with me, we're going to get down in the weeds here, but it'll pay off later. First, I want to look at the historical view, which is one of the ways people look at the eschaton. 
Many of the interpretations we take issue with that seem almost ridiculous to those in the dispensational camp come from those with an historicist or historical perspective on Revelation. Those in this camp see all the events and visions of the tribulation, all of them. The tribulation and millennium, that would be chapters 4 to 19 and chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, being played out during what we would call history. Between the first century and present day, they find historical past events behind everything that we see in the future. They would conclude that we are already in the millennium. There's been no rapture. We've lived through the tribulation and are now in the millennium. Or some may think we are still in the tribulation. Looking at today's headlines, one would guess we're still in the tribulation. And by the way, those with the exhaustive ESV study Bible, that, that one, that, that doorstop, uh, will find a helpful discussion on this and other perspectives along with some simple charts in its introductory pages to the Revelation. Now those in the historicist camp pepper their interpretations with ancient Roman emperors, medieval events, the Reformation, and especially the papacy of the hated, in their eyes, Roman Catholic Church. Then there are those that I would contend are spellbound by the apocalyptic language. They seem to insist at every turn that since this is apocalyptic literature, written for the most part using apocalyptic language, it must, it must by its very nature mean something other than what it says. Every object, every individual, every fantastical creature, every action represents something other than how it is, is, is described in the text. That is their natural bent to go running for some other explanation, whatever it may be. A literalist dispensational approach to the end times rejects this. Now I want to discuss the critical importance of God's word as reference. So, all right, I'm, I'm teaching a literalist, dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial approach to the last things. How then can I look at verse 1 of our text and conclude that the woman clothed with the sun is Israel? And that in verse 3, quote, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, end quote, is not just Satan, but also represents a revived Roman Empire. How can I do this? Well, that's a good and fair question. I would suggest there are two answers to that question. The immediate response is that both of these scenes in the first part of chapter 12 are introduced as signs. They are labeled as signs, semeon. We're told straight away that these visions represent something else, something tangible and actual, but something other than what the John is seeing in front of himself. In this text, the second answer is most pertinent to the scene in verse 3. Here we're told that the dragon had seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems or crowns. How do we know this represents a revived Roman Empire? Well, God's Word tells us so. Turn please to Daniel chapter 7. 
Daniel 7. Now bear with me as we get down into the weeds for a few minutes here. The prophet Daniel is shown a vision of four terrifying beasts that come up from the sea. Daniel 7 is a rich treasure trove for the study of the eschaton, and we'll be returning. But for now, we're going to focus our attention on the description of the fourth beast, which we find in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, fearsome and terrifying and extraordinarily strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great boasts. As we might imagine, Daniel required some help in translating this vision. And he got it from a heavenly bystander within the vision. The individual is not named. It doesn't say it's an angel. It, does, it just says someone nearby in the vision. Since the vision is of heaven, we can assume it was some heavenly creature, but it doesn't say. Since our purpose here is not to explain the Daniel passage, but to discover our second answer for the interpretation of the Revelation vision, permit me to pick and choose from the bystander's explanation just a little bit. Look at verse 17. We learn first that, quote, these great beasts which are four in number are four kings who will arise from the earth. Now verses 19-21. Then I, that is Daniel, desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept... I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Here we have in Daniel the introduction of Antichrist as one who devours three of the kingdoms, leaving seven, and one who overpowers the saints, that is, Israel. Remember, this is Old Testament, not new. Now verses 23 to 25 where the bystander in the vision offers more details about the fourth beast. Thus he, the bystander, said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, that is God, and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That is, three and one-half years. One year, two years, and a half a year. Three and a half years. Now, back to Revelation 13. <clears throat> In 
In chapter 13, we have the emergence of a beast coming up out of the sea. And notice his description in verses 1 to 2. It's Revelation 13, not 12. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. We won't get into specifics right now. We certainly will later. But we see right off the similarity between this beast and the beast in Daniel 7 and the dragon in chapter 12 of Revelation. Yet in chapter 13, we are told that this beast's powers were given to him by the dragon. So we know it's not the dragon. He got his powers from the dragon. So we must conclude that this beast is not Satan himself. Now let me cite John Wolverd's conclusion <clears throat> for our passage in chapter 12. He writes this, The second great sign appearing in heaven is described as a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. From the similar description given in 13.1 and the parallel reference in Daniel 7, 7 to 8, and 24, <clears throat> it is clear that the revived Roman Empire is in view. Just a little footnote here. It may not always be the case, but anytime you're reading prophetic literature and it says something was made of iron, bing, Roman Empire. That was the Iron Age. What were their swords made of? Not bronze, not steel but iron. So he said, it's clear that the revived Roman Empire is in view during the tribulation. That is, a confederation of evil states bent on world domination. Now, Walford continues, Satan, however, is also called the dragon later in 12.9. And it's clear that the dragon is both the empire and the representation of satanic power. The color red may indicate his murderous characteristics. The seven heads and ten horns refer to the original ten kingdoms of which three were subdued by the little horn of Daniel 7.8, who is to be identified with the world ruler of the great tribulation who reigns over the revived Roman Empire, that is, Antichrist. That's John Wolvert. Thus we have our two answers for us literalists to have the temerity to interpret these visions as we will. First, in chapter 12, they're identified as signs. That tells us they're not what they seem. Second, God's word itself will at times give us the interpretation we need. And we're not going, going to argue with that. If God says this is what it is, okay, okay. We won't insist on a literal interpretation when God's Word tells us otherwise. No matter who I read in preparation for this class, this is the final word. That's it. Now, let's look at the main characters. Most commentators take great delight in pointing out the seven main characters that are introduced in chapters 12 to 14. My response at first to this was, well, so what? Most of them we've seen already. What's the big deal? But usually when I have a response like that, God says, <laughs> God says, let's see, where was that two by four? Oh yeah, here it is. And he slaps me upside the head. <clears throat> I realize that there may be some merit in establishing or at least reminding ourselves who these characters are and under what names or titles we are to know them. In chapter 12, a woman clothed with the sun. Some say that's the church. 
and I've read their explanations for it. And I, you know, it's one of those things where you start reading and say, well, yeah, okay, yeah, I can kind of see that, yeah, yeah. But then after a while, I say, oh, come on, you're trying too hard. I think Israel fits right into this, which we'll see. Second, a great red dragon, Satan and his confederation of states. A male child, Christ Jesus, the angel Michael, the remnant of Israel. And then in chapter 13, a beast coming up out of the sea, which is Antichrist, the world dictator. Another beast coming up out of the earth, the false prophet, religious leader. He's the one that works the miracles that back up the Antichrist. He's, he's Antichrist's wingman. He, he's, he's his PR guy. He does all the flashy stuff that makes people think, oh, he's really God. Now we're ready to return to our text at the begin, beginning of chapter 12 and the first sign, that of the woman. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And right off the bat, we're able to turn to God's word for the interpretation of this fanciful sign in heaven. Back to Genesis and one of the dreams of Joseph. Turn please to Genesis 37. I love it when God's word takes you from one area to another and suddenly the light bulb goes off. Chapter 37, let's read verses 9 to 11. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Now, let me interrupt here for a moment. Okay, there we see the connection, the obvious connection. But, but what do they mean? Well, once again, the passage tells us. Let's continue reading 10 and 11. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. That reminds me of when Jesus says something to the Pharisees, and to us what Jesus said was a little mysterious, but the Pharisees got it right off the bat. They knew exactly what he was saying, and they picked up stones to stone him. And that's his dad immediately saw what the, the, the dream, the vision was saying. So the passage not only illumines the revelation passage for us, but whatever questions arise in verse 9 are answered in verse 10. What do the sun and moon represent in the dream? Joseph's father and mother, Jacob and Rachel. What do the stars represent? Joseph's brothers. Back to Revelation 12. Now, in Revelation, Joseph is included, which makes 12 stars. So we can identify the woman in this sign as Israel, since the sun is Jacob, the moon is Rachel, and the 12 stars, their sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Interestingly, the crown is the word we've seen before in the Greek, Stephanos. Not the crown of kingship, but the crown given to victors. Ultimately, Israel will be victorious through God's defeat of their enemy. Now verse 2. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. In John's vision, this great sign is being seen in heaven, but the passage speaks to events on earth. And especially those during the Great Tribulation, as well as the birth of Christ. The woman is pregnant. 
And we learn from verse 5 that this is no ordinary child, but the Messiah. Look at verse 5. And she, that is the woman in verse 1, gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. As Walvard states it, the woman represents, quote, Israel as the matrix from, from which Christ came. Doesn't, it's not Mary. It's Israel because Christ came out of Israel. Which, to me, think of this, if you interpreted this as the church, well, the church didn't give birth to Christ. Christ gave birth to the church. Repeatedly in Scripture, the travails of a rebellious nation or individuals are likened to the travails of women in childbirth so many times that I don't want to even think about going through that. Turn please to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. Beginning with verse 16. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Back to Revelation. Beyond that, however, verse 2 in our Revelation passage probably refers more to the national distress from without, from Rome around the time of Christ's birth rather than any difficulty for Judah in birthing the Messiah. You might want to refer to Micah chapter 5, verses 2-5a. to Now, let's read our next two verses. Revelation 12, verses 3-4. to And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. A gruesome scene indeed. So verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. So, okay, there's that word again, Simeon, sign. Appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Get that, it might be the phone. Oh, it's just Dennis. Okay. We're wrong, I guess. <laughs> I think that's grounds for excommunication. A second principal character is introduced into the narrative, and for a second time, John employs the adjective megas, translated great, which in this context could mean either large or terrifying or important or all of the above, which I think is probably the case here. Now note, there is a lot of time shifting going on in chapter 12. I suggest that the best way to digest these passages is to not get lost in reconciling the time frame of one passage to the rest. Don't let it bother you that one sentence may be 
2,000 years after or before the next sentence. Just flow with it. Just roll with it. Just let your mind flow back and forth with the text, for it does a good job of defining the time frame. We really don't have to wonder what it's talking about for in each scene. It's clear, for example, the woman and child in verses 1 and 2 and 5 refer to the birth of Christ Jesus. He's the one who will rule with a rod of iron. He's the one who will reign forever. And that would be approximately 4 B.C., give or take. Meanwhile, though, the appearance of the dragon speaks of the present tribulation. The dragon's actions skip around in the past from the birth of Christ to the beginning of the tribulation. Each time frame for each scene is not difficult to discern from the text, so just let yourself flow with it. Like his righteous counterpart, God, Satan works his will through the individuals and nations of this fallen world. And here these kings and nations are represented by the appearance of this monster. We get an explanation for these seven heads with their diadems, crowns of power and authority, and the ten horns in chapter 17. Turn there, please. Chapter 17. Once again, we'll dig deeper into this in chat when we get to chapter 17. But for now, let's just use it as a reference for chapter 12. Chapter 17. Let's begin with verse 7. And the angels said to me, Why do you wonder? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, the woman here is not the woman of chapter 12. Here it's Babylon, evil Babylon, that will be expunged eventually. So this is Babylon. The woman in this vision is Babylon. Now, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is the other. Or, excuse me. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now it's true that that passage gives us even more questions than answers. But it tells us that we're talking about kings here, nations, that will flow in and out of power. And we see shadows, we see echoes of Antichrist throughout that. One who's not yet come, but when he does come, he'll do this. MacArthur, John MacArthur, offers more details. The seven heads with their seven diadems represent seven consecutive world empires running their course under Satan's dominion. Now, see the difference here. He says consecutive nations. So they're, they're in power. Then these are, this is in power. Then this one there. So they're consecutive. And that is in contrast to the nations under Antichrist. Is your brain hurting yet? Mine is. So those, and MacArthur gives us the nations, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, 
Greece, Rome, and Antichrist's future empire. The final kingdom ruled by Antichrist, one who has not yet come, will be a ten-nation confederacy. The ten horns represent the kings who will rule under Antichrist. So there's those nations are all ruling at the same time, but they're just, as it were, governors of their nations with Antichrist being the king over them. Daniel 7, 23-25. The shifting of the diadems from the dragon's heads to the beast's horns, 13.1, reveals the shift in power from the seven consecutive world empires to the ten kings under the final Antichrist. Now that fleshes it out for us. So there's ten nations ruling consecutively and Antichrist, when he comes to power, he wipes out three of them, leaving seven. Leaving seven. I told you. Uh, but then when he comes into power, he rules over a confederation of ten nations. So now we have a better picture of what's going on with the appearance of this dragon in chapter 12. Let's go back there. Chapter 12. Verse 4, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Let's just stop there for now. Once again, God's word will explain for us the first sentence in this verse. And we don't even have to leave the neighborhood. Look at verses 7 to 9, same chapter. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan. Who's the dragon? Devil and Satan. God's word tells us who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this passage explains for us that the stars, here we've seen stars in practically every chapter. Stars, some stars fall from the sky, they do this, they do that. Stars given a key to the abyss. But here the stars referred to in verse 4 are Satan's evil angels. When he's thrown out of heaven, they are thrown out with him. Here pictured as the dragon's tail sweeping to earth with him, one-third of the angels in heaven. Which is a rather sobering number. Have you ever thought about that? Just think. At one time, one-third of the angels in heaven were in opposition to God. Helps us understand Job, doesn't it? The beginning of Job. We're shocked that Satan gets to parade before God and make a request. He's still in heaven. Until he falls, until he's thrown out, and his angels, he and his angels are still up there. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't think of this earlier, but about the middle of this week, it suddenly struck me that we live in a time when evil wants to devour the child even as it comes out. Yeah, we haven't made it to the millennium yet. We're still in the tribulation. When we put the pieces together, 
When we add to the present text the references later in Revelation and the Daniel passages, we can see that at the moment of the Messiah's birth, this one who would eventually return home to his father in heaven, verse 5. I'll, when we get to verse 5, I'll bring this up again, but it just strikes me. Verse 5, in just a few words, is the total life of Jesus from beginning to his ascension to heaven, to the Father. In just a few words. The one who would eventually return home to his Father in heaven only to one day return to do battle with Satan's evil and win, eventually casting the dragon into a thousand-year dungeon, only to release him so that he can be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. That dungeon is not his final resting place. The lake of fire is. And this as the time drew near for Messiah to be born, Satan would work through the leading power of the day, Rome, to do away with Jesus the Christ before he can grow into manhood. Remember the story, the Christmas story? That is Satan sitting there waiting for the child to come out so that he can devour it. When, when Herod says, go kill the firstborn male firstborn children, that's Satan. That's putting into history what this is telling us here. Satan earlier, in a similar fashion, worked through the king of Egypt to devour the child Moses a Levite through whom God would one day deliver his laws for Israel. Exodus 1, 8-2.10 Ultimately, all that Satan has devised against the Lord God and his Christ has failed and will fail. We know the end of the story. So does he. The other day in a phone conversation with a young woman from the Des Moines company that installed our satellite internet, Yeah, this is, this is my big dramatic conclusion. <clears throat> she pointed out that they were last out to our place for a service call in 2019. My response was, oh, only three years, that recent. She took the opposite tack. Seeing it as a longer period, she said, well, a lot can happen in three years. From the perspective of 71 years, three are a trifle. To a woman of perhaps 30 years, three are more significant. When we back away and squint, looking at the long picture of all that Satan has devised against God, from Eden to the birth of Christ, to the tribulation and the investiture of his evil powers and his servant Antichrist. After all that was set in place leading up to it, three and one half years of power over the world for Antichrist seems so trivial. Three and a half years. They were doing all that just for that. So trivial, so futile and meaningless compared to the 1,000 years plus an eternity during which Messiah, the Son of God, will reign. Think of all, as we've already seen, Think of all the bodies that are littering the earth. The blood that has flowed. The death, the carnage. The disease. The dead bodies too many to bury. Millions, millions. 
for what, for what purpose? Three and a half years of power on earth. That's what the Antichrist has. Three and a half years. And it won't work. All that effort, all that time, for what? For Satan, his angels, and his human servants, an eternity of being burned alive in the lake of fire. God will win. He already has. The big mystery is why Satan bothers, but he is. He's doing it. To wreak as much havoc and carnage as he possibly can. Our Father, we don't know all the whys. We actually know very few of the whys. We can read of the what's. We can put them in order. Try to make sense of them. But the flesh still keeps us from understanding all of your motives. Your reason for doing things. Why would you put Satan in jail and then let him out? We don't understand that. But that does not prevent us from bowing down before you. You are the one sovereign God and only you know what you're doing. And we cannot question it. We just have faith. We believe. And Jesus Christ is our Lord. So we know that all of this is in your hands and we trust in you and your son, the one before whom every person on earth will one day bow. The one eternal king. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience as you help us understand what it means. In the name of Jesus, amen.